This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Hi everyone, welcome to FODI. I'm Sarah Dingle. Welcome to today's panel on the bamboo ceiling. What is it? How does it function? And how can we punch through? I'd like to acknowledge that today we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. To kick off our panel, I'd like to tell you a quick story, first of all, about expectations and what it's like walking around Australia with a white name like mine, but an Asian face. A stealth operator, if you will. <laughs> a few years ago, I won a media award, the exact title of which shall remain nameless. And I was e emailing the coordinator about the awards night, which shall also remain nameless. It wasn't the Walkleys, that's all you need to know. <laughs> After a few emails, I had a very warm chat with the coordinator. She told me the order of ceremonies for the night, uh, which was elaborate, <laughs> and she told me to turn up a few minutes early uh, so we could run through it again, which I did. So on the night, I picked my way through all these well-dressed people and grabbed some wine, and then I found her. She was an older white woman. I said, hi, X, my name's Sarah Dingle. We spoke earlier on the phone. And this woman looked me up and down, and she said, Mitzi. And that's not a response I've ever had before. <laughs> So I said, no, I'm, I'm Sarah, we, we spoke on the phone, you emailed me yesterday. And she behaved as though she hadn't heard a word I said, and said, Mitzi! And I said, no, no, I'm Sarah. And my confusion must have shown on my face, because she said loudly and slowly, Mitzi, you're here to play the violin? <laughs> and I said, no. I'm here to accept your media award. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd think that would be enough, but it actually took a few more goes before her brain connected to her ears and she showed me to my seat. Later that evening, when there was a musical interlude, um, I actually realised what was going on. Despite everything, she had mistaken me for the teenage Asian high school violinist who had been chosen to entertain the guests that evening. So what is going on here? Years before Sheryl Sandberg told women to lean in, a Korean-American woman called Jane Hyun wrote Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling. Although Asian-Americans have the highest attainment of college education, Hyun wanted to explore why their careers seemed to stall before they reached the top levels. Jane Hyun decided that there were traditional Asian values holding Asians back from the top jobs. Does that work in Australia? First of all, we'd have to know what traditional Asian values actually mean, because Asia's a very big place. And secondly, are Asians always to blame? To help me answer those questions tonight, here are our fabulous panellists. Uh, Ming Long came to Australia from Malaysia as a child. She landed in Lithgow as a nine-year-old for a couple of years before moving to Sydney. Since then, she's risen through the ranks in media, finance and property and was, until recently, the group executive fund manager of the $2.5 billion investor office fund. She's currently considering her next move, although it probably won't be Lithgow. <laughs> Racial Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sutpomasan is of Chinese and Lao background. He's been championing the cause of diversity in Australia for years, last month releasing his blueprint for a more inclusive leadership style 
Tim Soupomassan has written a number of books, including the fabulously titled I'm Not Racist But. <laughs> and heads up, if you are a flight attendant, he does expect you to try to pronounce his name. <laughs> and finally, Jennifer Whalen is an expert in unconscious bias. She's the founder of Synapse, a consultancy specialising in diversity and advising corporations on inclusive leadership. Jennifer was also a research fellow at Melbourne Business School. Please welcome our panellists. And to start off, Ming, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. What is the bamboo ceiling? What does that mean? Oh, gosh. Um, there seems to be um, an invisible barrier um, for people who look Asian. Um, and you find all of the Asians normally within the bowels of an organisation, so the accountants are like, will go to the stereotype, and they're just the accountants, and they do all the maths-type jobs. <laughs> um, but we don't see them in leadership. Um, and it's because I think we have a very Anglo-Celtic um, sort of definition of what leadership looks like. So I say to people, you know, if you close your eyes and think of the first CEO you can think of, usually it ain't Asian. Um, and how widespread is this in Australia? Tim Supermassine, I know you've, you've done the numbers on this. What are we looking at? Well, we have a population in Australia that is more than 10% Asian in cultural background or composition. We know as well that our top performing students at high schools and at universities tend to have an overrepresentation of cultural diversity, including Asian backgrounds. But if you were to look at the senior cohorts of leadership in business, in politics, in government, or in higher education, you see nothing remotely close to 10%. Uh, we put some numbers on this recently. Among the ASX 200 CEOs, about 5% have a non-European background. If we're talking about Asian backgrounds specifically, that's even lower. Uh, within our parliament, uh, there's only a handful of people of Asian cultural backgrounds. That doesn't include anyone in the federal ministry at the moment. Uh, until recently, we had one head of a federal government department who did have an Asian background, Peter Varghese, the Secretary of Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but he recently left. So currently there's no one among the federal heads of government departments from an Asian cultural background. And among our university vice-chancellors, 40 of them, 85% of them have an Anglo-Celtic background and 15% of them have a European cultural background. So the numbers on this are pretty definitive and pretty clear, and what Ming has said is reflected in the evidence. We don't see the talent that enters our organisations within graduate intakes and junior ranks coming through into leadership positions yet, and we're entitled to ask why that's the case. And if there are barriers involved, if people are being denied the opportunity to meet their potential, then that's something that can harm our prosperity and our future. It means that we're not reaching our potential as a country. And uh, what Ming spoke about there, the expectation that uh, we're all accountants. Have you ever come across anything like that in, in your personal experience? Oh, from, from time to time. Uh, I usually tell people when I'm asked, what do you do for work, that I work at the Australian Human Rights Commission. I know that racism can be a touchy Topic, so I don't like to mention race uh, whenever I introduce myself, but from time to time people will ask me, so do you work in the IT or in the finance <laughs> section of the commission, assuming that I'm either an accountant or that I'm a computer 
technician. Now, um, I've had people tell me, Tim, it's only because you wear glasses, uh, <laughs> but I suspect there may be something else at play about my physical appearance, leading people to assume that. I mean, you Have know, you I... tried wearing contacts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work for me, but uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting because it illustrates for me what people, in, in all good intentions, uh, may assume me to do for work because of the way I look. I mean, it's a very natural, instinctive response that, that, that people have in jumping to that conclusion. And I think it reflects the assumptions that people have about Asian Australians or, or Australians of other cultural backgrounds, namely that they make for very good technicians, that they're good at doing scientific or mathematical tasks, but that they, they're not necessarily fit to assume positions of leadership which demand different skills. I mean, does that tally with your personal experience? Have you ever come across any bamboo ceiling type stereotypes? Oh, absolutely. And sometimes, I mean, I can't distinguish, you know, when it happens, um, whether it's because I'm a woman or because I'm Asian, because I'm sort of both, <laughs> so you can't get away from both. Double whammy, um, as it were. <laughs> and it is, I think, it, I think there is, it feels like there is a double negative that comes from being an Asian woman because the expectation that you have to play to that stereotype. And when you don't play to that stereotype, so if I'm too vocal, she's a bit aggressive, <laughs> you know, or if I'm too quiet, gee, she's not very ambitious. Um, you know, so you're sitting in this really narrow tightrope and you're trying to make sure that you always stay on. So you speak enough to ensure that people understand that you are ambitious and you have ideas and I can express my opinions, um, but not so much where they actually think of you as being aggressive and, oh my God, she's no longer listening. So there were circumstances where I was promoted above uh, my peers. And I remember the first, um, so having our first sort of team meeting, etc. and then there was some feedback that I was no longer listening to my team. Now, I was exactly the same person. I hadn't actually changed anything. But what that meant was that because I was now in a position of power or in leadership, they no longer could deal with me because I, was no, I wasn't their peer. And so I had to change my entire style. So there was a, a long time there when I no longer expressed an opinion. I did everything via a question, just so that they didn't feel threatened that I was there in the position of leadership. That sounds exhausting. It is, because, I mean, it's sort of, I'd rather spend my time doing other stuff, but <laughs> if that's the only way that I was going to be effective with my team and in that leadership position, you do it. You play with the cards you're dealt. Does that mean, in effect, you give away your ideas? If everything is a question, uh, you know, you're nudging other people towards the answer that you yourself think is the right one? Absolutely. But if that's the only way for me to be effective and show that I can be a leader and it doesn't matter how difficult you make my life, I can still do this, bring it on. Jennifer Whelan, you're an expert in unconscious bias. Yes. What is going on here? <laughs> um, so what's going on here is... Um, it, well, expert in unconscious bias, and I always like to point out that there's still plenty of conscious bias around too, but, but <laughs> leaving that aside... <laughs> 
let's assume we're talking about people who espouse fairly egalitarian views, people who are committed to making good merit-based decisions, people who are not in favour of discrimination. Uh, you have two brains, a conscious brain and an unconscious brain. Uh, your conscious brain is the place where all of your values and your egalitarianism sits. Your unconscious brain is just a, a vast neural network of learned patterns. Now, the learned patterns come from the social meanings and hierarchies and power dynamics that your unconscious brain marinades in. And it simplifies this very complex world by putting people and objects and ideas and experiences in boxes and keeping them there because they're simple and they're predictable. Your unconscious brain works extremely fast. It's, it's lightning fast. It, it, one of the issues or one of the reasons why it throws up so many biases is that it typically gets to an answer long before your logical brain does. But the problem is that it only notices very superficial patterns and so it often comes to the wrong answer before your conscious brain does. So typically when we talk about bias, we're almost always really focusing on the unconscious stuff. So in relation to the bamboo ceiling, or the glass ceiling, the, the dynamics of what's happening in your unconscious brain are the same, actually, regardless of what you're talking about. Your unconscious brain has a pattern for what a leader looks like, and in an Anglo-Celtic-dominated social system, a leader looks like a middle-class, middle-aged, Anglo-Celtic man. Uh, the closer you are to that, the more easily your unconscious brain can assimilate you with leadership. So if you are not Anglo-Celtic and you're not a bloke, then there's, there's, there's a bigger distance to traverse, mm. and that requires conscious effort. Mm. Um, if you don't have the resources or the time or the values or the commitment to put in conscious effort, your unconscious brain does the work for you. Well, we heard from Ming just then about um, stereotypes around Asian women. Uh, but, Tim, what is it like being an Asian man in Australia? Are there certain, uh, I suppose, assumptions attached with that? Well, some of the, the, the assumptions are generic assumptions made about Asian backgrounds in general. And, and I would say here there's a double-edged nature to Asian Australians or, or in other Western countries, say, Asian Americans being a model minority, uh, being a group that is overachieving because the, the, the positive stereotype there is that you're hard-working, you're diligent, you're a law-abiding member of society. These are all good images to have. It's, it's, uh, it's, th these are by no means negative, but if you look at the flip side of that and see how that can also work against people of Asian cultural backgrounds, that can be interpreted to mean that you are uh, less assertive, mm -hmm. uh, more submissive, uh, and that you're, you're meek. Uh, and, and I would say that there's a cultural trope more broadly about representations of Asia in Western culture that goes back, uh, you know, decades, if not 100 or 200 years, uh, which uh, ha has involved the feminization of the, the Asian other. Uh, the, the, the representations of Asians in Western culture historically have tended to be uh, feminine or feminized, and there's been a relative invisibility of, of male Asians within Western culture. And I would say that you, you still see elements of this in popular representations of Asian males. If you look at when Jackie Chan, for example, features in, in a film made for Western consumption and he has a love interest uh, who may happen uh, to be a Western female, uh, you're not going to see Jackie Chan uh, kissing uh, his love interest, for example. Uh, those are some of the really subtle mm. ways in which uh, 
I would say Western culture has historically treated uh, the Asian male, and it's been shaped by this overwhelmingly feminine uh, preoccupation with, with Asia, embodied in things like Madame Butterfly uh, and, and, and other uh, dramatic tropes. Mm. And this is, this is a real problem when it comes to fit with leadership, because leadership is, you know, talking about the positive aspects of stereotypes around Asians that are you know, diligent and hardworking and studious and law-abiding and respectful of authority. There's this, um, particularly the higher up you go in leadership, it, it becomes about charisma and executive presence and gravitas and polish and individual flair and all, all of that kind of, that, that, that kind of stuff, which is that there's this disjunct between how we stereotype senior leadership in that way and how we stereotype both Asian men and Asian women. Um, women of any cultural background don't have gravitas, Polish executive presence either, apparently. It's the sole preserve of Anglo-Saxon men. Mm. So is the problem not uh, a particular problem for Asian Australians per se? Is the problem just what we see a leader as? Absolutely. And we talk about, I mean, we, we, when we talk about inclusion, we're really talking about questioning our models of what leadership is. Is there only one way to be a leader? Is there only one leadership style that gets results? Do you have to look and sound a particular way to be a leader? To your unconscious brain, those patterns that I spoke about before, stereotypes are the most seductive pattern that you're conscious brain responds to. Mm. So the, the stereotypes that we have around culture or gender um, that put people in boxes, even when they're positive stereotypes, it means we don't see anything else mm. about them. So we may think, but it's, it's, it's a compliment that, that Asians are studious and law-abiding and hardworking and all of those things. But once your unconscious brain sees that box, it doesn't see anything else about you like the gravitas and the charisma and the executive presence that we associate with right. senior leadership. So inclusion is really about enabling a broader perspective on leadership. And it's also a turning around of the question. You know, when we talk about gender diversity, the assumption is we're talking about women. When we talk about cultural diversity, the assumption is we're talking about Asians or Africans or Latin Americans, but we're not talking about Anglos, right? So it's, it's always this othering process where the problem is out there. Taking an inclusive perspective, the, the problem is actually is about looking at the dominant model of how we, how we think leadership should be and broadening that out so that you don't have to be just one kind of person in order mm. to be a leader. That's very difficult to do. Well, for those who have made it to an executive role, I was speaking to um, a woman who is of Indian background, uh, who uh, made it to a very senior level in um, the financial sector. And she said at every performance review, she would always be told, you know, you work great, whatever, uh, but <laughs> maybe be more assertive or be more outgoing. Or, um, and all the advice was predicated around be, be more like a white male. And she said she used to ignore it every time. Um, <laughs> but when she left that sector, she was very upset that she didn't have someone else that she could hand over to. There was no one else coming through the pipeline. Ming, has that been a similar yeah, so, experience to you? Um, so playing to that model of leadership in your mind. So I'm a natural introvert. You don't naturally see introverts in leadership. Um, and so when you know, I was aspiring for leadership, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to change how I do things. So. I adapted my style and my style, I have what I call my weekday style, which is an extrovert, and then I have my weekend where I'm actually just recharging because it takes so much effort to be an extrovert during the weekend. So, um, because at the moment, that's the style you see, and unless you, you actually gravitate to it, 
you may not actually get that leadership position because that's still the model they put you up against and they want to see the characteristics there. So, I mean, my advice to a lot of people who aspire to those leadership roles, whilst it's, it's damn tiring, um, you sort of have to actually work with the cards you have. You have to adapt your style to the leadership style that they expect of you because when you get into that leadership, you can change it then. And I, I think, that, yeah, yeah, there's something to be said about that. And, and, and I talk to a lot of professionals and, and, and to many organisations in corporate Australia about this question. And it concerns me to hear uh, people sometimes say, well, you know, it's not good enough. The organisation's got to understand my, my different style and, and, frankly, I should be respected for who I am. Now, I understand that and that's where we want to be eventually. But if you don't understand the traps that may be, uh, may be before you and if you don't work against the system and challenge expectations in a very strategic way, the change will never come. You can't mm. wait for change yeah. to happen. Uh, sometimes it does require you to very consciously understand that the rules of the game may not be in your favour and to do what you can to move up and succeed. Uh, to give you a, a really specific example of, of what I'm referring to here, uh, I get a lot of Asian Australian professionals say to me, it's really difficult for me to get through, uh, th through to a leadership position in the organisation because there's so much informal networking and social activity that happens. I don't like going to the pub for a drink. I don't have an interest in AFL or rugby league. Uh, and, and so therefore I, I don't engage in the banter. Now, it may be a burden for you to have to learn the rules of AFL or <laughs> be familiar with rugby league, but I'd say it's a, a fairly modest uh, burden to consider. I mean, if that's the kind of small talk you need to do in order to register uh, as, as, as a member of a group, if that's what it takes to get some time to, with your CEO or with your boss to have a chat, uh, I would say that's a modest investment that people can make. It's not perfect, but it means that you're actually in the conversation rather than yeah. left out by default. So, I mean, the example I give, I mean, I have no interest in AFL, rugby, et cetera. Um, <laughs> I can talk about soccer and basketball because my husband knows all about it and I hear what he says about what's going on and then I sprout the same thing. <laughs> really, I have no great interest in it. I mean, you can learn enough from, you know, obviously I'm, I'm listening to my spouse's territory, you learn enough to actually talk enough to, so you sort of sound intelligent. I'm also a non-drinker and I come from, I was sort of working in the property industry and when you're a non-drinker in the property industry, <laughs> you're like oil and water. You can have water and they can drink a lot and, you, and it's amazing what you can learn when they've had a few. <laughs> so, so you can yeah. use things like that to actually to your advantage. Yeah. You shouldn't boycott, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't boycott. <laughs> but what about, okay, so what about the merit argument? Shouldn't Asians just get there on their own merit? If we are so damn hardworking, why isn't that enough? Um, merit is uh, one of my favourite topics to oh, argue with people about. <laughs> uh, I've written a lot on merit. Um, so the first thing that we can say about merit is that uh, it's completely subjective. Um, what, what I think the best person for the job is is not the same as what Tim or Ming might think the best person for the job is, right? We define merit in fairly self-referential ways, right? And one of the key ways in which we define merit is are you like me? 
Uh, I'm, I'm senior in this organisation, I've done really well, so the more like me you are, the more likely you are to do well here too. And that's, for your unconscious brain, extraordinarily easy processing, right? It's, it's familiar information is more attractive to the brain than new or different information. So we can actually think of merit as a... It's, a, it's actually almost a, a, an on-ramp for sources of bias rather than a guarantee against bias. And, and probably some fascinating research that actually shows if you make selection decisions under two, two frameworks. One is a merit framework, performance-based. One is a fairness framework. You actually make more unfair decisions under the merit framework than you do under the fairness framework. Um, merit also, that, that, so, so that merit, is, merit looks like me argument is to start with. The second um, issue with merit is that it primes one of the two key dimensions of stereotype, which is capability. So if we ask what, what are the, this person's merits, what we're really asking is what are their capabilities? What they, what, how capable are they or how competent are they? Mm. Assertiveness and competence are one of the two key dimensions upon which stereotypes tend to fall. So we're really priming that stereotype of assertiveness when we talk about merit. Um, and in, certainly for senior leadership roles, that assertiveness and capability is all about that um, uh, gravitas and charisma mm. and executive presence and all of those things that we, we tend to more readily associate with Anglo-Celtic blokes. Pulling back from senior leadership, there was a 2011 ANU study about just simply hiring. Correct. Um, which found that for people with uh, Chinese surnames, mm -hmm. Uh, they had to apply 68% more times to actually get a job. Yes, and that, that was a replication of a, a similar study done in the gender space in the US that showed that you, you, were, you were considered more hireable, um, more competent and offered 20% higher starting salary um, if you had a male name compared to if you had a female name. So two identical resumes, one with a male name and one with a female name and no other information, um, attracted this bump in perceptions of hireability, capability and value or worth in, in a dollar sense mm. um, as well because it, it fits. A, a, a merit looks like a man and it typically looks like an Anglo-Celtic man. Mm. Um, so if you have an Anglo-Celtic name and you have a masculine name, we just, your unconscious brain instantly goes, well, that sounds, that, that sounds more like a leader. And when you're actually delivering on, on your promise of merit, Ming, for instance, you were brought on board to steer your company through the GFC. Did successfully doing so help you feel more accepted within the organisation? Um, I think there was a moment where I was more accepted because I think, I mean, basically everyone still kept their job, so they're pretty <laughs> grateful. So, um, <laughs> um, so they, there was an element of, geez, that was really great what you did. But it also meant that once that was over, I was meant to go back into my box, right? right? And so you still went into a situation where... Um, you know, people were still trying to aspire to the same roles that you were aspiring to, and so therefore, they're all the stereotypes that came back in. The great thing I liked about the GFC... <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, I was very cautious about saying that. <laughs> ..is that it was such a disruptive time around the entire world, and it gave opportunity to people like me who did not fit the stereotype um, to, to actually take a leadership position because everybody understood that you could not operate your business the way you did it last time and you had to do something new. So um, because I had very different ideas to my peers, etc., 
I was given that opportunity to actually lead, knowing that you know, most of the banks and most of the, uh, the, the shareholders I was dealing with um, actually didn't think we would survive. So, you know, you're dealing with the, I think in, in gender terms, it's called the glass cliff. Um, but, you know, they are really great opportunities when you're, you're working through that difficulty to show how bloody awesome you are. So, hot tip for any Asians out there, systems in crisis, get in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and disruption <laughs> yeah. right now, a lot of industries are having to work with, there is not a lot of growth coming through, you know, it's hard to actually find how you're going to find that productivity, use it to your advantage. But there's, there's risk with that too, though, isn't there? I mean, isn't there an element of poison chalice yes. here mm -hmm. and, and, of, and of setting people up for failure? Yeah. Whereas if you're dealing in fair weather conditions, the usual suspects get an opportunity and get a much easier run, whereas your less likely candidates, whether it's female, and, you know, mm -hmm. this is a phenomenon in politics, for example, when female leaders mm -hmm. usually tend to... Uh, to, to, to have leadership positions only at the very end of a term or in very difficult circumstances. But, I mean, there's an element, but, but there's Tim, element there, right? If you don't take it, mm. I would have never made it. Mm. Mm. You know, how long, else, how long would I have had to wait? You know, and if we, we talked about before, having role models within the system to say, hang on, I can think of an Asian woman who's done this before, right? Maybe I can do it too. You know, do I wait for that instance yep. to actually take it? It's actually, I actually think it's better to actually take the opportunity and show what you're capable of than to sit back and wait. And there's a, I mean, there's an Australian movie I love. It's one of my favourite movies called Dish, right? Um, it's called Failure is Never Quite as Frightening as Regret. <laughs> you know, take that risk and do it because you never know where it takes you. There is, an, there is a, a poison chalice aspect to that, that glass cliff stuff. That, that research is fascinating. It came out of this observation or reports in the UK press 10, 15 years ago that uh, all of these women CEOs seemed to fail at a, at a higher rate than their male counterparts. And the researchers involved were curious to know whether that was actually true to start with. And if so, why? Uh, and their finding was that women were more likely to be promoted to be the CEO of a business in trouble, so they were more likely to attract what they called precarious leadership positions. So, you know, the idea is, oh, well, we're in complete crisis, nothing else we've tried has worked, what the heck, we'll give a woman a go. She can't, she can't possibly do any it worse, can't than, get we worse. All, than, than we already have. Um, hence the higher failure rate, right, because you're being hired into a position where you are almost doomed to, to failure anyway. Mm. Um, so there is very much an aspect of, of that kind of poison chalice, but then I, I guess I also agree with you is, is that give it a go. Yeah, I, and, and, I, and I agree too. You've got to be sensible about yeah. these things. Like, yeah. Don't take a job where it's about to go you know, under tomorrow. Like, there's a bit... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but you're, you're right, though. All, all too often people will wait until they have those perfect conditions before they say yes, but that time may never come. Yeah. 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 Tim, from what you've observed in Australia, around the country and overseas, is Australia more prone to a bamboo ceiling type phenomenon than, than other countries like the US or the UK? I'm not sure that we are. And, and there's, there's limited data on this, which makes a com an authoritative comparison difficult. But I, I would say that if you were to do a similar exercise and audit the cultural composition of leadership in Britain or in the United States or in Canada, uh, other, in other words, like 
uh, Anglo democracies, you're not going to find a situation that's dramatically different. Uh, where there are perhaps uh, more notable differences is, is in the visibility of cultural diversity within inst cultural institutions mm. in particular in Britain and the United States where it isn't so unusual or exotic to see diversity on TV, for instance, or in positions of, of social prominence, whereas I would say that in Australia uh, that, 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 that is yet to be the, the, the case. Uh, but for me, that's an illustration of how this is really about a broader issue of how you deal with difference and a broader question about power uh, in societies that have to deal with diverse populations. Um, that's what it's all about, questioning the, the default and ensuring that people have an opportunity to enjoy a trajectory that will involve leadership. Mm. And of course, we had that, um, that recent Screen Australia study um, on diversity, which found that uh, although about a third of Australians come from a non-Anglo background, only about 18% of the time were they actually on screen in anything, mm. uh, which is not awesome. Um, <laughs> what, what effect does that have? If we don't see non-white faces on screens, if we don't have non-white characters in books, what, what does that do to us? Well, if you don't have role models, then children growing up in a society may not aspire to certain positions. Uh, I, I think of what Whoopi Goldberg, the African-American actor, said about herself as a young girl watching Star Trek when she saw another African-American woman on screen. And that's what made her uh, decide to become an actor. I think of young Australians today seeing people like Jeremy Fernandez read the news on ABC or seeing Waleed Ali on The Project and the difference it can make to their ambitions or seeing someone like Penny Wong uh, or Ed Husick or Alinda Burney or Pat Dodson. Um, this is about ensuring that our future generations have the right aspirations and don't simply aspire just to having a decent job, uh, which is a fine aspiration, but we need to ensure that uh, people also aspire to become Prime Minister, CEO, University Vice-Chancellors or you know, anchors of 7.30. Uh, that's the kind of society we want. The last thing we would want is for a society where only a certain section of our community believes uh, that they can reach those positions and where another section of our society quietly accepts with resignation that, um, you know, I may only get to be a senior producer on 7.30 or it's my aspiration to become pro-vice-chancellor uh, at a university or uh, one day I hope to become a councillor on my local council. That's not the kind of aspiration we should be uh, seeking to encourage. Mm. So kind of you can't see what you... Yeah. Or you can't be what you can't see. Um, the other peril, I think, of not seeing diverse faces is that um, from the unconscious bias perspective, your unconscious brain wires for what it sees, for what it marinades in, for what it's surrounded by, what it sees on the television, what it sees above itself in the organisational space as well. And for as long as it continues to marinate in a predominantly Anglo-masculinised environment, that is what it wires for. That is what it expects. That is how it puts people into boxes. Mm. And it, so it won't change until what it's marinating in changes too. Well, um, going to what you were saying, Tim, about federal politics, this is a particularly hot time for discussions about race and racism, of course. 
We've just had 20 senators signing a motion uh, calling for Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act to be repealed. We're back in this debate again. How does this affect the bamboo ceiling? Would repealing 18C make it easier or more difficult for us to move non-white faces into leadership roles? Well, I, d I don't think it would have a positive effect, uh, <laughs> for, for obvious reasons, uh, because laws exist to send a signal to society about what's acceptable conduct and what isn't. If, if we are a society that is committed to racial tolerance and to acceptance, then uh, our laws should reflect that commitment. Uh, if you engage in racial abuse or harassment in public, it's only right that you're held to account to it. Uh, your freedom ends when it begins to impinge on another person's freedom, and there's no absolute right when it concerns freedom of speech. This is uh, a freedom that shouldn't ever outweigh a freedom all of us should enjoy to be free from bigotry's effects. Um, you know, going back to what uh, what uh, Ming was, was saying uh, about taking on a challenge. Uh, when I took on this job three years ago, it was uh, knowing fully well that there was going to be an attempt to repeal Section 18C of the Act. Now, we've had constant debate about this provision of, of, the, of, of the Act. We had a debate that was resolved in 2014 when the federal government abandoned its the proposal to repeal Section 18C, we saw widespread opposition to that. I don't believe this is the time for us to be giving licence to people to inflict their hatred and bigotry onto others without any consequences. Uh, but this does have an effect on how we conduct our workplaces and our professional lives. Uh, I don't think we can quarantine political debates from work. Uh, and I would say that there is a real danger that if we don't get, get it right on racial tolerance within our political debates, uh, then things may turn uglier within our workplaces. It will become harder to push back on racism if it's expressed in professional settings, if you have politicians or if you have governments giving sanction to it through the repeal of racial discrimination legislation. Can I just jump in one thing? Um, now we talk about racial tolerance a lot. Um, it's actually more for me around respect for that difference. And that respect for that difference is the piece around diversity that is so valuable. And I really don't want to lose that. Um, the other thing about that, so the 18C and marrying that with, with corporate Australia, if you get told enough that you are not good enough because you're racial, you know, you come from a certain heritage, etc., you're going to start to believe it, whether you hear it in media, whether, you, whether it, so it gets repealed and you hear it within the office because it's now allowed, you start to believe the rhetoric that you hear. And when your confidence in your, your, your young and your, you're growing your confidence, etc., it is absolutely going to have an impact. So, you know, to have that respect for each other where you will not, you know, fall into that situation where you're, you're putting someone down just because they're of a different background to you, um, it has a massive impact. There was a, um, a campaign done recently by the Diversity Council of Australia that words matter. Words really do matter. What you say in the workplace to your colleague really does matter. Mm. Do you think now is a good time to be different in Australia? Is it actually getting easier for non-whites? 
Um, look, there's, I mean, I get to a point where I understand there will be a cohort of people that no matter how hard I try, they will not change their mind. And I'm quite happy to let them go on their merry way. I do worry about them because there's an element of, of inequality within society, which means that they are not educated enough or they haven't had enough broad experiences which actually help them understand that racial differences is actually not the problem. I mean, God, we're all part of the human race, like, get over it, you know? So. Um, um, I, I do worry about those sort of people. Um, but I also think that there is a pretty big majority of people who understand the issue and will not, um, you know, sort of gravitate down to that level of debate. The issue with the, the I would say, the silent majority is that there's a saying by Benjamin Franklin that Justice will not be served unless those who are not um, affected by the injustice feel as outraged as those who are. And it's getting that silent majority to actually fall in behind and support you know, all of the discussions around diversity. So it isn't just around bamboo ceiling. It's not just about gender. It's not a, just about LGBTI. Um, it's not just about disability. It's really, let's get all of the talent on the table and work out how we're going to use them best to, to further Australia. So that silent majority is really what I focus on because they are so powerful. It's just that they're not taking the power and they're not exercising the power that's in their hand to make a difference. Tim Sukhavasar. Yeah, and, and, I, and I would add that the challenge with getting that, that silent majority to take action is to, is, is, is to get them to think about the skin they have in the game here. If, if you're not being directly affected by discrimination or prejudice, it can be easy to sit back or, or be indifferent. It doesn't mean that you're outwardly hostile towards the idea of equality or acceptance, but you may not necessarily have the same personal motivation as someone who's on the receiving end. But the ability for uh, that hypothetical member of, of, of this silent majority uh, uh, to, to intervene and to support those who do advocate for equality is, is something worth, worth thinking about. Uh, I, I would say that we can often jump to the conclusion that things are deteriorating and that things have become more difficult. Uh, but we, we need to be cautious about this. I, I would say at the moment we have a hardcore minority that is hostile to racial acceptance and cultural diversity that is becoming more vocal and becoming very intense in its agitation, but we shouldn't mistake that for believing that the vast majority of Australians are hostile towards uh, multicultural acceptance. I would say there's enormous goodwill in the Australian society. Uh, we just don't see that coming through our political debates because a small section of our community are intent on uh, being very vocal in pushing back on cultural diversity and racial tolerance at the moment. Hmm. Jennifer Whelan, I want to ask you about how we fix the bamboo ceiling. 
Do we need quotas for cultural diversity? <laughs> um, that old chestnut. <laughs> um, from my experience of the targets slash quotas debate in relation to gender is that, that Australian society is not quite ready to have that serious conversation yet. My experience of the quotas debate in relation to gender is that it's incredibly, polar, incredibly polarising. Um, it scratches that little nerve that Australians have around being a meritocracy and the idea of a fair go, and the idea being if we have to hire X number of people from a different cultural background or women, then we're going to have to lower our standards. And, that, and, that, and, and it goes against the merit principle, right? <laughs> when actually, I think it'll actually lift the bar. <laughs> so so here's, here's exactly the thing, right? If, 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 if you buy the, the idea that your organisation hires on merit, and every room I sit in with senior executives, every person in the room will swear to you, black and blue, that they only hire on merit, it's the best person for the job, and that, like, that means something. I say, so then, if you've already been doing this for some time, how do you explain the dearth of women in your executive ranks, or culturally diverse people, or LGBTI people, or people with disability, for example? If you hire on merit, and there are very few diverse people in Seniors in senior positions, then by extension that means you think those people just don't have the merit, right? The, the, the so-called, in the, in the Abbott era of explaining the lack of women in cabinet was, well, there are lots of women almost on the doorstep of having merit, right? Um, but, but, not, but just they're just not quite there yet, right? So if you believe that, that you hire on merit, then you have to explain the, the inequality in your senior ranks as being a function of the fact that diverse people don't have enough merit. Now, in the case of both culture and gender, talent coming out of university, there is no problem, right? Women outgraduate men at, at university, and I think, as you mentioned before, our highest achieving academic students from Asian backgrounds. So there is plenty of talent when it enters the organisation. There's lots of merit in culturally diverse people and in women. So does it just vanish as they move up the ranks? What, I mean, what happens to it? Where does it go? Um, they don't suddenly lose capability. There is, there is something in what we're selecting for and how we define success and capability and leadership and merit that mitigates against different faces looking like the right fit. So in terms of how you fix, <laughs> how you fix that problem, uh, I, there isn't a single fix for the problem. Um, education and awareness, a redefinition and a willingness to seriously question, honestly question, the norms and conventions we have around what leadership looks like and how it can be done um, effectively and, and repetition, <laughs> constant repetition <laughs> of the message. Can, can I just add on, on targets and quotas, and I'm supportive of, of the idea of targets, at least in the first instance, um, the difference between target and a quota being that a target's voluntary and a quota's uh, a mandated or imposed uh, number, uh, is that we have quotas in all sorts of forms already when we allocate positions of leadership. If you're talking about the federal ministry, for example, there are quotas that exist based on geographic representation for instance, and no one's throwing up their arms saying, oh, goodness, we don't have merit uh, there. <laughs> Quotas are reducing merit in, in, in leadership in our politics. If you're talking about corporate Australia, uh, boards aren't determined by merit. They're determined, the composition of boards is often determined by ownership. There are quotas that are attached 
uh, to institutional owners of organisations. But again, we don't have this resistance to having a, a quota. So this furphy of quotas reducing merit or obliterating merit just doesn't hold water if you look at how leadership positions are actually allocated at the moment in our politics, in business and in other realms uh, as well. But in, in fixing it, uh, I think you've got to do it from the top down. You need to have leadership that's committed to ensuring you have more inclusive cultures, but you've also got to do it from the bottom up. We need to see more people from culturally diverse backgrounds uh, put their hands up for leadership, be more assertive, uh, and ensure that there is no reason for others to say, well, we'd love to have more diverse diverse teams of leadership, it's just that they're not there in the pipeline at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's an excuse uh, t today that that is preventing change from happening. Ming, you're I'll pretty um, assertive Monday to Friday, but uh, what yeah, do you think so should be done? If I can, um, this is sort of my little dangerous idea for you guys, um, there's a little bit of homework that I have for you. Um, on Monday, go <laughs> and see your CEO or your team leader or whoever it is in leadership within you know, whatever organisation you're working in and ask them what they think about diversity and cultural diversity and ask them what they're doing about it. And don't let them say, oh, no, we've got a diversity committee for that, right? <laughs> you have to ask them how they are personally invested in ensuring that diversity happens within your organisation. Find out whether they are invested or not, because that's going to tell you whether you are going to progress within that organisation. And really, if you're not, take your talent somewhere else. For, to an organisation that's going to care about you and progress you and, and basically, you know, create, help you become the vision of what you want to be. Um, second thing, there's power within your hands right now. There's, I mean, there's one thing... Um, can I just stereotype for a second, which I hate. Um, um, Asians are really good at social media. I mean, we were almost <laughs> going to do... <laughs> we, we were almost going to do a selfie before, just to show, you know, stereotypes. We actually did do a selfie. Oh, yeah. did we? Okay. <laughs> um, um, at social media, there is power already in your hands to progress a discussion on this. So, you know, when Tim released the Cultural Diversity Blueprint last month, get on social media and talk about it. You know, at the moment, media, a lot of disruption in media, they're looking at clicks, how many people click through to, to stories and how many people write comments, etc. Just by doing that, you're going to teach them, all of the media organisations that this is a really important topic that they should get on. Um, so definitely use that social media to your advantage to help progress this issue. And help leaders like Tim, you know, or Sarah, who's, you know, going to win another Walkley, um, to, to actually support them. Because it's hard getting up when you're the only one doing it. It's really, really difficult. So support people who are of different ethnic backgrounds, etc., cetera, um, because it's difficult. The last thing I'd love you to do is create that network for yourself, and I, I know network sometimes for people feels really scary, but you need to, I'll use this other word, you find a posse of people <laughs> <laughs> um, who have your back and that you have their back. And I know it's really hard sometimes to crow about how awesome you are. They will do it for you and you can do it for them. You know, that, 
that posse of people who will help you progress and look after you and be your venting post, etc., is, is really important for your career to progress, especially when you don't see a lot of people like you in the organisation you're in. So can I just ask you to do those three things, please? Just Some really make great a lot of difference. There. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we do actually... Um, we do have some time for questions. If anyone would like to make their way to either of the microphones, spotlit there. Um, in the meantime, um, I, I actually should, should mention that, of course, um, while we may be Asian, we don't represent all Asians in Australia, and there is a bit of um, a triple whammy I was talking to one of my friends about. If you're Asian and a woman and you wear a hijab, that's kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, there seems to be a bit of a, a higher... Oh, we have a question. Would you like to... Yes? Sure. Um, hi, great panel and, and very pertinent topic. I think um, one of the very interesting aspects of the bamboo ceiling itself is that it is a very multifaceted topic in terms of, uh, for example, as um, I can put myself in the same shoes, uh, I come from a completely non-English speaking traditional community in the south of India and I've been here for about nine years and I teach at the Sydney University so I've engaged with uh, Tim previously. So um, one of the most common problems that or, or uh, uh, multifaceted issues that one might face is um, a, how uh, one is perceived by Australians as a non-Australian and then how um, one could be perceived by people of your own kind in Australia and of course, how you are perceived by your people when you go back home. And it's, it's very different um, in each context because in India, I might be not Indian enough. Um, and, and here, I'm not Aussie enough. And I, I kind of fit into every stereotype that you've spoken about. I, uh, I, I go to the final round of interviews and, and crack it, and then I'm offered a lower position or um, I've been told in performance review stuff like, oh, you might want to get rid of your Indian nod. You're doing a great job, but just, you know, work on that. And, um, it, 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 it happens more often than you think. Mm. Um, and, and even when I, I deal with thousands of students, uh, mainly in the post-grad space, and what's very interesting is you are perceived, uh, I'm perceived as a very approachable person because I come from a similar cultural background, but the best bang for the buck is your quintessential white Aussie male delivering a particular you know, course. And, and that sort of, um, it's, it's very interesting to, to sort of observe and experience that and still try to work through that. Hmm. Um, so it would be great to hear your thoughts on these aspects. Yeah, can I just say, the fact that you are here and having worked through nine years of this culture, it actually means you've become stronger and resilient as a result sure. because I understand all of the additional obstacles that are put in your place just because of where you've come from. The great thing about someone like you um, is that you become a bridge for Australia back to India um, to help Australians understand Indians a lot better. I'm sort of of Malaysian, sort of Chinese, sort of background. I don't speak a drop of Malay. I don't speak a drop of Mandarin, right? Um, I'm making my children do Mandarin and hopefully they understand how important it is. But <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, kids. Um, um, but, you know, if I ended up in China, people would look at me saying, oh, my God, you can't speak Mandarin. What is wrong with you, right? Um, 
I have a, a um, when I'm in Asia, um, I used to do sort of road shows through Hong Kong and Singapore, etc. I used to change the way I speak. So I have what my colleagues used to term a Chinglish sort of way of saying. It's like an Asian accent because in, in Asia, they don't understand the Australian accent very well. It's actually, my minds actually quite think I understand that. So um, I always look at people like yourself as quite unique and then therefore important to Australia because you are that bridge and we need more people like you to create that bridge for Australia because it's going to help our country become more, more successful. Thank you. Great question. Thank you. Over at number one. Yeah, thanks, guys. I just want to hear your thoughts. We talked about Asians on the screen. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on uh, Asians on the screen in particular in comedy um, and Asians... Like whether, they, whether you think they um, contribute anything or they detract anything or whether they... Yeah, I just want to, see, want to hear what you guys think about that. Well, I'd say it can be, double, it can be a double-edged sword. Uh, at one level, if we, we, we have humour uh, that gets conversations going, you would hope that that leads to acceptance of, of difference and to empathy. Uh, but if, it, it, if humour serves to reinforce certain stereotypes, if, for example, you're playing to multiple audiences and one audience gets the joke but another audience doesn't get the joke and sees that as a validation of stereotypes, then I can see the negatives that can be associated with that as well. Uh, and I would say that care really needs to be exercised uh, here and you would hope that artists and comedians coming through are mindful of the responsibility and the impact that they will have on cultural mm. understandings of identity. I'm really loath to put any boundaries on comedy because I think comedy achieves most when it does what it wants to. Um, but the best single rule I've heard about for comedy is always punch up. Mm. Don't punch down. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that would be my thought. Um, number two. Um, first of all, I wanted to say thanks for, uh, for inspiring all of us today um, for being role models and overcoming the odds to be here and, and share your experiences with us. Um, I did have a question, I guess more of an emotional one. Um, I've lived in uh, a various, I don't like really using the word Asian because it just seems like such a broad term, um, but living, having lived in Thailand, Japan and all that, I've kind of experienced the reverse, um, and, which is totally natural because yep. it's quite, the, Japan is a very homogenous place, um, despite the fact that there actually is quite a bit of diversity when you, when you dig down. Um, but with, through your experiences, um, uh, and, and Ming, you, you mentioned it earlier, the more you hear it, the more it sort of enforces it. How have you dealt with the self-esteem side of things when mm. here you are succeeding and here you are really um, you know, setting, setting a, a positive path for yourself and for others to follow, but you keep experiencing these same things? Like, How do you process it internally mm. um, and, and stay strong? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I have an amazing family. My husband is the best venting post you've ever met. <laughs> he, he's an absolute strength. You would not believe how amazing he is. And I'll, I'll end up crying, but I'll try not to. Um, so that's it. I'm not going to talk about any more than that. Um, second thing is... Um, I'm sorry, and the other thing is the posse is really helpful um, because they'll, they'll remind you it doesn't matter what these guys are saying this is what you've done. Because um, inevitably you forget the amazing things you've done in your life. The other thing that drives me more often than not is purpose. You know, why am I here? 
and why am I doing what I'm doing? And sort of when you go back to think about your life and what's going, what it's going to mean, you know, there's a, there's a Mark Twain saying that there are two important days in your life. One is when you're born and the second is when you work out why. So when you think about us and how far you think we've come far, come, come a long way, I think of all the people that have come before us that fought the good fight to get us to where we are, I'm thinking about the next generation and thinking, you know what, if I don't continue this discussion and I don't keep on pushing the issue, the next generation is going to find it so hard and I want them to stand on my shoulders. Very, very quickly, last question from number one. Okay, g'day folks, my name's Cindy. I'm from Perth in Western Australia. Hey. (laughs) Perth is a very, very conservative city. Uh, I am a small business owner. I run three businesses in Perth. Uh, My main source of income is I run a music, sound and lighting business. So not only um, am I working in a male-dominated industry, I'm an Asian woman working in a (laughs) male-dominated industry. So, uh, what was I going to say? Um, so I just wanted to talk about how I break people's brains every single day. Um, I have venue owners come up to me and assume that I'm the helper girlfriend and that my roadie is the DJ. Um, so it, I never, ever saw anyone do this growing up and it wasn't until I had a grasp of the technicalities of how music equipment, how PAs are set up, that I actually felt confident enough to start my own business to do it. So what I'm trying to get out here is I I want to thank you for getting up there to show that power is possible. Um, But I also want to say that if you don't see yourself out there, it doesn't mean you can't be the first. Absolutely. That is a wonderful (laughs) thought to finish on. Thank you, Cindy. And that is all we have time for. Thank you very much for coming along today. Please thank our panellists, Ming Long, Tim Sithamasan, Jennifer Whelan. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.